Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, you know, one thing that I love about doing this podcast mm-hmm. with you is the fact that it gives us an excuse to research things that just pique our interest Yeah, at random. Mm-hmm. For instance... We are in charge. Yes, we are in charge <laughs> of this podcast. And um, we decided to talk about imaginary friends today, not because of the subversive gender politics of children's fantasy play, nah. uh, but really just because imaginary friends came up in some of our research dealing with only children, right? which we talked about recently. Because they're not lonely. They're not lonely. They're just creative. They're well-adjusted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it got me thinking about imaginary friends and where they came from. Yeah. And I thought that maybe listeners would enjoy hearing about some scholarship on imaginary friends because similar to the only child, uh, well, similar to the only children's stereotypes as being, you know, lonely introverts, kids with imaginary friends also have some stereotypes as well. Right. As either being geniuses Mm -hmm. or... Kind of dim. Yeah. Kind of, kind of strange, strange and misfitty. Mm-hmm. Um, we read this meta study from 2006 by Espen Clausen and Richard Passman on the history, not only the history of uh, imaginary friends, but the history of the study of imaginary friends. Because, um, as we've talked about before, um, the the idea of childhood didn't really come about until more recently, and mm-hmm. so they they sort of looked at the past studies. On, on children and on imaginary friends and everything. And it's really changed over the centuries because not everybody really used to care so much about kids. They were like, whatever, they're just small people. Right. The actual concept of childhood as its own distinct life phase emerged after the 17th century. And then, um, but it wasn't even until around the 19th century that it was thought of, uh, thought of as a crucial time of growth and development that they should actually uh, pay attention to because really... Um, in that time, kids were just seen as small workers with little hands. Little hands that can get into those machines and really fix things. Um, yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, the 20th century, that's when we really start to see children being uh, viewed as these people, these small people who have special needs and desires and need to play and really have their imagination set loose. And, um, that's when we get these recorded instances of pretend companions or imaginary friends or whatever you call them. Different researchers have different names for them. But um, it's interesting because it seems like these imaginary friends didn't really emerge until kids did have set-aside playtime and they were on their own and they're playing with their toys by themselves and all of a sudden they have imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. And, and there are different views of them, of like whether it's just the kid's imagination, they're just playing, or whether it's an actual spirit mm-hmm. that's inhabiting the child or there's some demon following them around. And um, one study of imaginary friends in India, northern India... I thought was very interesting. So in northern India, there there are very few recorded instances and no recognition of uh, pretend companions. But this is a culture where children um, have less playtime and little time to be left 
alone, and those are conditions that could reflect the era before childhood was really recognized as an important period for play and exploration. Mm-hmm. And speaking of um, of India, Clausen and Passman also note that um, a lot of times pretend companions, when uh, those instances do come up, it's usually perceived as uh, someone, like a spirit from a previous life yeah. coming to visit the child. It's kind of seen as a, uh, in a in a positive light. Whereas in the book by Peter and Sue Vanderhoek and Neil Anderson called Spiritual Protection for Your Children, uh, pretend companions or imaginary friends are described as uh, preternatural powers that can, quote, result in spiritual bondage. Right. So it's sort of like uh, there's a, you know, certain certain people are worried that the devil is inhabiting their children or that the devil is in their room. And I went on Amazon to, to kind of check this book out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, had, a lot of readers had written reviews of it. And one person said, you know, I was so uh, nervous about my child because, you know, he kept saying that there were monsters in his room or under his bed. And I kept saying, no, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. And then I read this book and I realized that Satan could be in the room. And so, there, yeah, there's there's been very – and that's that's a view that's, you know, gone back for, for a long time. So it's interesting that so many different people have different views on imaginary friends. And I think it's just something, uh, you know, we might be uncomfortable with it because it's totally unfamiliar. If you can't see uh, this – you know, entity that a child is supposedly having conversations with. Right, you some, might worry about your kid a little. Right, some parents um, get a little squeamish, but as we will, as we will learn, they don't really need to be. Nah, but nah. Let, but let's back up um, and maybe trace the history of um, scholarship related to. Imaginary friends, because there are a lot of studies dealing with uh, child development and the psychology around imaginary friends. Right. Uh, the first studies on the topic uh, did start start rolling in the late 19th century, but unfortunately, study practices, research practices were not as uh, maybe carefully monitored as they are now. And so a lot of, there, there were studies where the common traits of children's pretend companions were tabulated, but data were not gathered in any sort of standardized way. So we have stories of kids who had imaginary friends and, and you know, attributed personalities to objects, but but nothing nothing that we can really get percentages from. Right. And there's also, as a result, a, a wide range of analysis regarding right. imaginary friends. For instance, um, an early psychologist, Lewis Terman, thought that um, imaginary friends were common among gifted children. So it was a good thing. Yeah. But then uh, we have sociologist Charles Cooley, who was a turn-of-the-century academic, who thought that imaginary friends were evidence of the need for socializing. Right. So, yeah, Cooley was saying, like, clearly humans need to socialize, even if it is with an imaginary entity. And how sad for you <laughs> that it's not a real person. Um, and and let's let's we can't leave out we can't talk about children in psychology without mentioning G. Stanley Hall Granville Granville Stanley Hall, who he's kind of a jerk. He hurt my feelings in that Only Child podcast for saying that I'm a misfit. Yeah, he had a disease. He was the developmental psychologist responsible really for starting the whole lonely only child stereotype. And not surprisingly, he was not a big fan of imaginary friends. No, he considered pretend companions in terms of the child's withdrawal of attention from outside stimuli to focus instead on the internal processes that maintain 
the personality of this pretend being. So the child was, you know, wasting time. They're not focusing on fun things like playing outside. They're, they've turned all of their attention inward, and you, you probably should fix that. <laughs> Uh, and then there is the idea um, that pretend companions are a way of children negotiating between reality and fantasy. Mm-hmm. And this was put forth at the turn of the century um, uh, by Naomi Norsworthy and Theodore Theodora Whitley. Um, and they said, quote, it's usually a lonely child, there it is again, mm-hmm. a lonely child that develops these play companions and they'll become more real to him than his living playmates. There's a little uh, air of like stranger danger in that quote. Beware <laughs> like, the imaginary friend. Right. Yeah. And they they use these imaginary friends as an example of how children might not be able to differentiate really between reality and pretense the way adults can. Mm -hmm. You know, they use this as evidence of like, well, obviously, adults are mature. We've had life experience. We've learned a lot. Um, We know when something is fake and pretend or whether it's real. And they just assume that children couldn't. And they say that this whole practice uh, of developing a an imaginary friend results in losing all of the, quote, give and take that comes with living children. So they're worried about kids who have imaginary friends, especially if the imaginary companion is at the expense of having real, live, warm-blooded friends. But a lot of those early theories are so you know, contradictory because on the one hand, they, they see imaginary friends as uh, a sign that a child is, you know, needs more socialization with actual children, but having the imaginary friend will only impede them from ever being able to socialize with kids because they'll only be able to talk to uh, the, you know, tiger, the imaginary <laughs> tiger standing next to them. I know you just can't get rid of that imaginary tiger. Or snuffle up, I guess. God, it's been following me around for years. Um, one idea that's persisted into modern research is from Jean Piaget, who regarded conversations, children's conversations with pretend companions as retaining vestiges of self-talk. So the kid is moving from, you know, just talking to him or herself in, in sort of a play way and like using nonsense words to developing a narrative and being able to converse and actually s- speaking socially. Mm-hmm. So uh, having conversations with other people. So, so he said that it's, it's more of a development process. Yeah. And similar to, uh, that idea of imaginary friends as a way to negotiate between fantasy and reality. Um, other child psychologists have thought that children would use pretend companions to cope with internal and external demands, kind of how they, uh, early ways to negotiate with their own I guess, psychological development. A lot of times you'll, you'll see, um, imaginary companions termed as coping mechanisms for kids. Mm-hmm. Right. In the 1930s, um, research really starts to shift away from theory to actual empiricism. And Margaret Svensson's seminal 1934 study is one that gets talked about a lot uh, with child psychology and imaginary friends. Uh, she basically established an operational definition that we think of today when we talk about imaginary friends. And she looked at a group of 40 Chicago school children and found that imaginary companions appeared at the median age of two years, 15 months, and were three times as often appearing to girls than boys, which, okay, these things sound normal and non-offensive. Mm-hmm. But then she said in her in the abstract that I read about her study, says that personality difficulties were present in most of the children, timidity being most common. You know, people, why you got to be a hater? So basically, Margaret... Svensson is the G. Stanley Hall 
of the uh, the imaginary friend. I don't know if she's so hostile. She's yeah, she's not quite as. <laughs> man, you got a bone to pick with old G. Stanley Hall. I know. Uh, well, once you hurt my feelings, you know, it's hard to come back from that. And Sensen is also responsible for establishing kind of the go-to definition of what an imaginary companion is. And we should note that she did not cat wouldn't categorize something like an anthropomorphized stuffed animal, um, like or an actual object that kids might endow with human personalities. Um, but this is her this is her go-to for imaginary friends. She says that they are an invisible character named and referred to in conversations with other people or played with directly for a period of time, at least several months, having an air of reality for the child, but no apparent objective basis. And, um, and, and it's still kind of, you know, the benchmark. Yeah. Well, I think uh, what's interesting also is that there's just this giant lull where nobody really cares about children's uh, imaginary friends anymore as far as research goes because Svensson was publishing in the 30s and then major interest in research in this topic didn't reemerge until the 80s and some of the stuff i read was saying you know that maybe that has something to do with what researchers were actually interested in as far as how children's minds worked and how children fit into our society and mm-hmm. everything um and now, uh, a lot of times, imaginary friends are seen as a vivid merging point between fantasy and reality. That it's not uh, a bad thing that these kids are have such vivid imaginations and can, you know, see these characters. Uh, but that it's actually it's a good thing, and that they're actually good benefits. Good benefits. That's incredibly redundant. Uh, <laughs> there are benefits of having imaginary friends. Right. And according, to, depending on what study you read, I'll just say a lot of kids have imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. Um, some uh, some articles I read said it was 65%. Yeah. Some have said half. But you have to also take into account what are they counting as an imaginary friend? Are they counting, you know, your blankie or your stuffed tiger that you put a personality on as a personified object, or are they just counting the imaginary guy that's over in the corner? Right. I was um, as I was reading uh, all, all this stuff on imaginary friends. I was going into it thinking, well, I never had an imaginary friend. Mm-hmm. I didn't have uh, a Hobbes. Yeah. Um, but I did realize though that my puffalump named Ducky, mm-hmm. who was one of my best friends, I took her everywhere. Um, <laughs> Uh, she she kind of fit all of the criteria as an imaginary companion. Yeah. We spent a lot of time together, <laughs> old ducky. What kind of personality did she have? She rocked. She was really easygoing, liked to have a good time. <laughs> and uh, I also would give her uh, flying powder so that she could fly around. Was that Kool-Aid? Um, Pixie sticks? It uh, Magical? It was Lipton iced tea. Actually, was not expecting that. I know. Were your parents mad that you were taking the iced tea? No. Oh. No, I think I'd probably <laughs> snuck it. So I'd give Ducky a, a little sip of tea. And by Ducky, I do mean I would drink it myself because I loved tea. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we would go on flying adventures. Oh, fun. Mm-hmm. No, my blankie did not take me on any flying adventures. I, I, I went into this, into this thinking the same thing. I was like, I didn't have an imaginary friend. Actually... I remember being in my parents' room watching TV and thinking, like, wow, kids my age, I feel like it's really common, because I, I obviously talk like that when I was however old. Uh, you know, kids today really seem to, to think these imaginary friends are pretty cool. I'm imagining a little Caroline wearing a monocle. <laughs> Holding a, a bubble pipe. Um, 
Yeah, I was like, you know, I'm kind of bored. Boredom, mm-hmm, child alone, not yep. ha- you know, left alone watching TV, and I'm an only child. I'm you know, whatever, seeking stimulation. I'm like, let's see what this is all about. So I remember hopping down off the bed and getting on the floor, cross-legged, and and looking into the blank space across from me, and being like, okay, let's go. Come on, imagination. No one is here. Make- this is dumb. I'm gonna watch Nickelodeon some more. <laughs> Make me a friend, brain. But I did. No? But I did have a blankie that I that that had quite a nurturing and maternal um, personality. So what does what does that kind of fantasy play that we engaged in, like so many other children, mean, Caroline? Well, it just could. It could be anything. I mean, it could really. I mean, <laughs> not to not to totally cop out here, but it it could just be. A child playing. Mm-hmm. It could be a coping mechanism, like you said. Um, it's just, it's not uncommon, really. It's normal. It is normal. And um, the stereotype that imaginary friends are linked to shyness or maladjustment has been pretty thoroughly debunked. Right. Um, the 1990, a little bit dated, uh, but still this book called The House of Make-Believe by Dorothy G. Singer from Yale and Jerome Singer, who's now a professor emeritus of psychology, um, said that kids who are choosing to create imaginary friends tend to be more sociable and have more friends than the only children, and it might possibly be because they have better communication skills, certain research suggests. Could be, because they've spent all that time talking mm-hmm. in the thin air, and you, and they've had to come up with both sides of the conversation. So they're, they're used to maybe thinking of possibly what the other person would be thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, because not all um, imaginary friends are ducky or blanky. You know, there some of them, kids actually argue with their imaginary friends. Yeah, there was, I was reading in uh, Marjorie Taylor's book, Imaginary Companions and the Children Who Create Them, which is fascinating, if only for the interviews with kids about their imaginary companions. And the... I mean, the the elaborate descriptions these six- and seven-year-old children will offer to researchers is incredible. One of my favorites of which um, was uh, a girl who was really into dolphins. She loved dolphins, and so her parents gave her a stuffed dolphin, and um, she named the dolphin Dipper. (laughs) But if you ask her to describe Dipper, she would tell you that he was the size of a door and covered in sparkles and stripes, and lived on a star. Just as any Lisa Frank character yes. would. And lived in a trapper keeper. <laughs> <laughs> but that was great. And there was a, there, there was also Cucumber Boy. Yeah, Cucumber Boy was offered up as an example in this breakdown of who has what type of imaginary friend. And according to research by Gabriel Trionfi and Elaine Reese, um, imaginary companion play like we said, is more common in firstborn born children and in girls. Boys are more likely to impersonate a character, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. But their breakdown, uh, 65% of kids they studied had one imaginary companion. 13% had two. And a very large chunk, 22%, had three or more imaginary friends. And I really like the breakdown of what those friends were. Uh, half of the companions, a full half, were identified as people, mm-hmm. some type of person hanging out, another kid or whatever. 14% were identified as animals. 25% were identified as fantasy beings. 
such as Cucumber Boy. And there is no more detail. Yeah, that was the only, there was no explanation there was like on Cucumber Boy. Just like Cucumber. And I'm like, well, of course, Cucumber Boy. I What? I need something more than that. I need a chapter on Cucumber Boy. And then 11% the identity was unclear of the imaginary friend. Yeah, Marjorie Taylor uh, notes at one point uh, the, a case with a child who had an ongoing, and she says, rather stormy relationship <laughs> with a chest of drawers in his bedroom. I have never heard of anything like that. And I mean, that's, I don't know that, that would necessarily be categorized as an imaginary friend. Well, but definitely but, a personified object. Yeah. Much yeah. like Blanky or Ducky. Mm-hmm. And, um, and she also says, uh, that in, I think it's 34% of kids with imaginary friends have said that they will get angry with their imaginary companions at times and even have arguments with them. Right. Um, the New York University Child Study Center tells parents not to worry. Um, if your kid is, has an imaginary friend, it's not, nothing to worry about. And if your kid does not have an imaginary friend, don't worry. Mm-hmm. It's not that they're going to be stupid or not be able to pass their verbal SAT section. Um, but that you should just let it happen. You know, em- embrace that, that fantasy play. Right. So if they are arguing with their dresser, it's not, it's not necessarily that you're being too strict of a disciplinarian or they're watching mommy and daddy fight and so they're fighting with the dresser. It's more just that your kid is developing. They're this little person and they're getting used to the world mm-hmm. and they're getting used to new ideas. And so it's just their way, like we said, of a, it's a coping mechanism. So they're learning how to, what, you know, what does discipline mean? What, how do I interact with other things and yeah. furniture? It seems like for, uh, for parents, at least what, uh, Marjorie Taylor writes about her own experience with her daughter who would have imaginary friends. She said that the hardest thing about it was sometimes if, uh, if they kind of can't turn, turn the imaginary friend off. Especially if they, uh, she was saying that she went to a dinner party or something and her daughter saw a dog at the person's house and immediately just became a dog for the night. And that was it. And if she would ask her, you know, like, are you done with your dinner? Like she just, <laughs> she would not respond in, in, in people. I'd rather, people speak. I'd rather just have a dog. <laughs> um, well, it could depend on your birth order. Yes. Um, birth order and imaginary companion status, both, both uniquely predicted children's narrative skill later in life. So it's interesting. I mean, I'm kind of switching gears here. It's interesting because, you know, we've talked about only children and firstborns, mm-hmm. how they're perfectionists. There's a lot of pressure on them, both internally and from their parents to really perform well. But these kids who are talking to imaginary friends have been practicing their narrative skills and, you know, figuring out what this imaginary other person is thinking. Um, so that's a good predictive of narrative skills. But so is birth order. And like I've said, firstborns tend to have more imaginary friends than other people, other kids. So that's that's a good sign for your SAT scores. And it's interesting because it's higher. It's actually both of these are higher for kids whose mothers knew about the, the imaginary friend. Because they're assuming that if the mother knows about the friend, this is in a study from New Zealand, um, that it means that there's been some interaction. Mm-hmm. That the kid has told the mother about the imaginary friends. So there's been some conversation about it, whereas kids whose imaginary friends were kept hidden, maybe there wasn't any conversation about, what is this person thinking? Mm -hmm. Because if you have an imaginary thing that the parent doesn't know about, it has to be completely explained. So this kid has to come up with an entire narrative and personality on their own. 
Dippy, the dolphin who lives on a star. On a star. It's incredible. Um, well, in regard to status and imaginary friends, there was one notable gender difference, and this is coming out of the research from Gabriel Trionfi and Elaine Reese, and apparently girls tend to create imaginary friends of lower of a lower status. Hmm. A lot of times they'll be slower or they'll be kind of dumpy. Um, and and the girls will sometimes pick on on their lower status imaginary friend or, or use them yeah. uh, to kind of get away with things. It's like, oh, sorry, I, you know, I'm, I'm late for breakfast because Trudy couldn't <laughs> get her shoes on fast enough. Uh, whereas boys tend to create imaginary friends of equal status. Kind of, they they like to have someone to pal around with more. Okay, but boys are less likely to create imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't know what what does it all mean? What does it all mean? Why are we Why are we creating people to pick on? Are we practicing for high school? What's going on? Well, in two thousand five, uh, Slate published an article, kind of looking at all of these different studies on imaginary friends because it really has been analyzed. Uh, down, sideways, mm-hmm. and diagonal. And the the writer suggests that, hey, you know what? Maybe maybe they're just playing. <laughs> what? Yeah. And that Slate article also mentions your friend Marjorie Taylor, mm-hmm. whose 2005 study with Stephanie Carlson found that kids are slightly more likely to have imaginary friends later. So whereas earlier we talked about a study, a uh, Svensson study that found imaginary friends came out around two years, 15 months. Mm-hmm. This one says that 30 31% of six and seven-year-olds say they have imaginary companions compared with 28% of preschoolers. And it would make sense that, uh, you know, six and seven-year-olds would be most common among that age group because that's really when, you know, they're starting to go to school. You're really mm-hmm. starting to form your You, you have know, a lot ideas. to cope with. Yeah, there's a lot of new stuff coming your way, and it probably would help to have a friend or a ducky. Or a blankie or Barbies. Mm-hmm. I was all about Barbies. And I, you know, I kind of have to be like, all right, look, I had a pretty good verbal score on my SAT. I played <laughs> Barbies all the time. And I was creating a narrative. Yeah. I mean, I had the Porsche, for goodness sakes. So, I mean, I was creating all sorts of storylines with Ken. Mm-hmm. Take long romantic yeah. drives down they, Malibu. They sure would. And in their, their wind-up Jeep, Oh, be it pink or red. So the original question that I had in my head when we were uh, going over the only children research and I started thinking about only friends or imaginary friends was where do they come from? And the answer is they just come from kids' brains. And it's a right. normal and healthy part of child development that has been uh, scrutinized now for over a century, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you, you know, if, if your child has an imaginary friend or if you had an imaginary friend, it's it's a good thing. It sounds like now, if you still have an imaginary friend, that could be that could be some sort of psychotic break with reality. That would be probably a pretty intense kind of coping mechanism, right? <laughs> and if you if you do, please tell us. We'd yeah. like to hear about it. Yeah, I, I'm, I I would love to hear from people who have the, just the total imaginary friend, like no, not a personified object, right? Um, and the real backstories. Deal. Let us know about your imaginary friends. I can't wait to hear about all of them. Mm-hmm. And if you anyone out there had a cucumber boy? Oh my god, I want to know what it is. Is it the veggie tails thing? Maybe. Do you think or do you think this kid came up with cucumber boy? He's like he saw his mom chopping a cucumber and he's like, "No." I mean the yeah, just the the interviews with children about their imaginary friends are so are so incredible mm-hmm. that it it could be just someone 
you know, making up a cucumber boy. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. let us know. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is the place to write. In the meantime, we got a couple emails to read. Uh, this is from Elizabeth in regard to our sex ed two-parter. And she writes, I had a cri- strict Christian upbringing, including a private Christian school. Sex ed did not exist for me at all. Uh, she says, one thing I would like to discuss are the chastity contracts. Simply put, I hate them. In my experience, Christianity definitely stamps any sexual-related activity before marriage as bad. We are told to flee all temptation and avoid anything that could potentially bring us bring this bad thing into our lives. It could have been rather easy for me to sign a contract to remain chaste when I was 13 years old because while I very much liked boys, I didn't know what chastity included or that sex at the right age and with the right person could actually be a great thing. I guess I find these contracts to be so damaging because if anyone who has signed one does engage in sex, the shame that comes with breaking that contract could psychologically sour their sex lives and sexual identity for a very long time. So that's an, that's an interesting take on sex and the church. Okay, this is an email from Jenny, who, she says, I'm currently 18 and live in Canada. My last sex ed class was when I was 16, grade 11. I would say in the majority of public schools in Canada were taught comprehensive sex education. I found our sex ed class pretty helpful because I've never been that comfortable discussing sex with my parents. Our classes provided a lot of information about contraceptives, which is great information to have because I am so much more aware of my options now. Unfortunately, I would say the one class in which we discussed abstinence wasn't particularly effective. No one really took the class seriously, and I personally found the woman who taught the class to be fear-mongering. I feel like abstinence classes need to be taught in a more positive way instead of simply pushing all the terrible things that can occur from sex. Good point, Jenny. Excellent point. Uh, and again, if you want to send us an email, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. Or you can leave a comment over on Facebook or give us a shout on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. Or you can write a comment in the blogs, Stuff Mom Never Told You, at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House of Works iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?